This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for inviting me today. Um, I get the dubious honor of talking after lunch when everybody gets groggy. Um, I'm also going to present some information. Much of it has been covered today in different ways. So to counteract those two factors, uh, I've worn a much brighter shirt than I've had on this morning. Uh, Today I'd like to um, cover two topics, uh, fundamental issues associated with the production of seafood through aquaculture, some of the basics about aquaculture, and then to present some ideas to start a discussion about the possible um, avenues of research uh, that we might undertake at UC uh, regarding Aquaculture, um, and my talk is a, a contribution to, uh, from the Sark Center. Um, and as you've heard many times today, we understand that fishing of wild stocks of marine organisms is plateaued, um, and that from 1950 to the 1990s, it was actually increasing at a much higher rate than the population growth, and that since then, uh, catches have plateaued and even declined. Um, And we also learned that to meet um, the growing per capita seafood demand of a growing human population, um, that we're going to have to produce seafood another way, and uh, that is apparently being done through aquaculture. Um, And as Reed pointed out, in 2012, farm-raised fish provided about 50% of the seafood demand. Um, The FAO now estimates that by the year 2030, we're going to need another 23 million metric tons of seafood produced by aquaculture to meet that demand. So that means that the total amount of seafood we're eating um, from aquaculture will go up to about 62%. Um, What kind of species do we eat uh, within aquaculture? Well, it's dominated by freshwater species. Uh, Fishes, as you see there, this is in metric tons over time. Um, The most... Uh, produced freshwater fishes are carp and tilapia. Um, diadromous fish are dominated by salmon. Uh, marine fish are many different species are grown. Marine fish, probably the most by tonnage, are amberjack. Um, crustaceans, of course, are dominated by shrimp. Mollusks are combinations of mussels, oysters, and clams. And then there's a whole suite of other species that are produced. Um, including sea cucumbers and, of course, nori, or red uh, algae that is used in sushi. Where is aquaculture produced at a global level? Well, it's dominated by China and India and other countries in East Asia. Um, Egypt is also a big producer of uh, aquaculture. There's where tilapia originated from and where it's produced. And also Chile and Norway are big producers because of their uh, salmon aquaculture production. The U.S. is way on the low end of the scale. We produce only about 8% of the global production, um, so there's a huge uh, scope for growth here in this country. Um, Some general economics um, have to do with what we're uh, fishing uh, taking out of aquaculture, 40, this is about a $100 billion a year industry worldwide. 40 billion of that is in freshwater fish. Um, 23% is in shrimp. Um, there's 13% in, in salmon and other diadromous fish and mollusks. And then marine fish are a sm- much smaller percentage. In California, it's about a $200 million industry. Uh, we happen to lead the nation in the production of tilapia largemouth bass, abalone, sturgeon, and caviar, which I was hoping we would have for lunch, but that didn't make it right. Aquaculture has a long history in California. We've uh, been doing aquaculture since about 1850, and the first aquaculture industry was in oysters. Um, We moved into San Francisco Bay, and we removed all the native oysters in San Francisco Bay through pollution and through eating them. And as soon as the Transcontinental Railroad opened, we began to ship in seed oysters from the East Coast and try to grow those out in, in the Bay. And as you've heard, a really important bottleneck to future growth in California is the permitting issues. Um, there's a lot of benefits to aquaculture. We've covered these today. Important source of protein can alleviate pressure on wild stocks. Um, it can be energy and space efficient. 
And it also can stabilize prices and markets. Um, that has to do with the fact that most aquaculture is not seasonal, while many fisheries are. So you can produce um, certain species out of season for uh, concern um, compared to the wild stocks. Of course, as we know, there's no free lunch, and somebody even said that today. Um, there are many impacts, um, and these are listed some of the major environmental impacts, habitat degradation, reliance on marine fish as aquaculture feed, water pollution and use, and the spread of disease, parasites, and even invasive species. Um, in terms of habitat degradation, most of those, of course, in a marine context are on the coast, uh, and a major concern is uh, what happens to mangrove forests. Uh, over the last decade, we've lost about 35% of the total mangrove forest area, and that's a, at a rate of loss that's higher than tropical uh, rainforests. Um, the loss comes from development, from climate change, but also from aquaculture. Uh, an example of that is seen here in Thailand. There's another picture um, we saw earlier where land is destroyed and it's not easy to restore that land or very expensive to restore it back to, to mangrove forests. Of course, there's a number of cultural impacts associated with this environmental degradation. Um, for instance, the coastal folks in Thailand um, are displaced by shrimp farms. They then are not um, able to uh, execute their many sort of diverse uh, types of marine fisheries, and they become basically low-wage earners within the shrimp, the shrimp uh, food chain or the shrimp um, industrial chain. And once those industries then fail, which they do, those people are left high and dry. So there can be big economic and cultural uh, impacts. Of course, uh, what we're trying to do at UCSB and other places is think, to think about solutions. Um, some of the solutions to the problems of habitat degradation uh, have to do with uh, moving shrimp aquaculture from onshore to offshore um, into structures that, uh, that are called, for instance, aquapods. Um, Steve Gaines and a number of students, uh, Steve Gaines overlooked a, what's called a Bren group project that looked into the feasibility of using aquapod, aquapods to produce shrimp and found that it was a, a good way to go and it appeared to be profitable. So there's hope uh, in, in terms of ha habitat degradation. Another issue is uh, forage fish for fish meal. Um, you know, many of the fish that we're farming, such as salmon, are carnivores, and they take a lot of meat to, to produce their, uh, the biomass that we then, then harvest. Um, that, much of that protein comes from forage fish, such as herrings and anchovy, that are fed directly to fish or that are uh, um, added to fish meal. Um, and how we calculate this or understand it is something called a fish-in versus fish-out ratio. So how much protein do we put in per ton uh, to get one ton of um, production out? And for salmon, it's a, a five-to-one ratio. It takes five tons of fish-in in protein versus uh, one ton of production. Um, of course, there are cultural impacts associated with that. As we're stressing forage fish, um, fisheries out, we're collapsing some of those fisheries, and we're having an impact on higher trophic-level fisheries that depend on forage species um, to maintain their production. Um, there's some really important problem-solving going on in, in terms of this uh, within the aquaculture industry and researchers, um, in which they've been able to reduce the amount of the percentage of fish meal that goes into fish feed through time. And so... These are data showing that percentage for salmon, shrimp, and some other species, and you can see a pretty uh, dramatic uh, drop in the percentage of protein going in from fish to, to the fish meal. Of course, a, a really good option is to move towards the lower trophic levels, um, such as uh, the mollusks, which you get um, this fish-in versus fish-out ratio at even less than one. Of course, that really depends on shifting markets and shifting tastes, so... This is what a lot of folks think about when they're um, interested in aquaculture-produced protein, and this is what that shift towards the lower trophic levels might look like. And it has a lot to do with changing tastes and changing um, perspectives about food. Um, U.S. has a, uh, an interesting history in this regard. At one time in the 1800s, everybody ate oysters for every type of holiday, and they were shipped into Tennessee and to 
places way away from the coast to, to enjoy during uh, different periods of, of, of the year. And so we've had a, a strong taste for um, filter feeders in the past, and we probably can recover that. <clears throat> in terms of other environmental risks of marine aquaculture, there are lots. Um, they're shown here in this figure. Um, for farmed fish uh, that are uh, grown out in cages, we have really high densities of fish usually, and high densities of fish mean that they grow slowly, so you have to put lots of food in them. A lot of food in means a lot of waste out, and if it's in shallow water, that waste can then uh, deposit on the seafloor. Uh, high densities also mean the easy passage of diseases. Um, so often the salmon farming and other uh, fish farming requires lots of inputs of medicines to uh, counteract diseases, and then you get es- escapements of uh, genetically modified species that can have an impact on, on wild populations. Um, there are many sort of problem-solving associated with this. One is the placement of uh, some of the cages offshore into deep water where the pollution uh, on the benthic environment is reduced, um, lower stocking densities of fish uh, to reduce disease spread, and also somebody mentioned before uh, the idea of polyculture. Along with fish cages, um, there's a possibility of outplanting or planting along with that um, filter feeders such as mussels that take up the nutrients and the biodeposits that come out of the, the fish cages. Some of the basics. There's a really great um, resource for thinking about um, the future of aquaculture, and it's produced last year by the World Resources Institute. It's a report. Um, there's the, the website. Uh, and they come through with some sort of major recommendations. One is to increase the investment in technology, innovation, and transfer. Uh, and they point to uh, the, the need to increase our um, understanding of breeding and genetics, disease control, uh, nutrition and feeds, and low-impact production systems. Um, use of spatial planning to, to guide aquaculture growth. This is sort of an integrated coastal zone management, um, and there's some really good examples of uh, those uh, ideas moving forward, for example, by Dr. Sarah Lester here at UCSB for the California coast. A shift in incentives to reward, reward improvements in productivity. Um, A lot of the impacts of aquaculture are actually externalized, the costs are. Um, So usually aquaculture industries aren't paying for pollution, they're not paying for habitat destruction or the greenhouse gas emissions. So if those costs can be more internalized, uh, we can then move towards uh, sustainable practices through creating incentives in which um, they're uh, basically getting rewarded for good practices. Um, leveraging information technology has to do with better modeling of aquaculture systems and monitoring. And again, I sort of end up here at the a shift from the consumption of uh, towards low trophic um, level species is really important. Um, in terms of the second part of the talk, what I wanted to do is sort of step beyond mitigating the impacts of aquaculture and think about um, ways of moving forward. I think we're well poised to advance um, the aquaculture through um, an effort to produce food but also have the aquaculture industry um, have positive impacts on the ecosystem or enhance marine ecosystems. So let me give you an example of some of the work that's being done in this regard. Um, This is based on research that I did in North Carolina uh, in the early 2000s. Coastal North Carolina, um, as you can see here, Pamlico, Albemarle Sound, which is the second biggest estuarine system in the, in the country, produces hard clams, which uh, taste really great. They're a really good food source. Um, hard clams uh, grow out in the lagoons and sounds of North Carolina where they're fished by hand, commercially or recreationally, um, and they're fished from marshes, from seagrass beds, and oyster reefs. Um, they're really uh, common, uh, really um, popular product, and they were fished heavily beginning in the 1980s and 1990s. And uh, you see here a crash in the fishery that was due to overfishing, what we call recruitment overfishing. They removed too many of the, the big brooders, the big moms that produced young, and they weren't then replenishing those uh, clams that were fished. Out of that, an aquaculture industry developed that produced clams that were sold, um, but it it was basically produced clams at a pretty high price. 
Um, it's much cheaper to produce seed clams, these very small ones that don't spend much time in the hatchery, and then to outplant those into the, uh, the, back into the lagoons to <clears throat> restock the uh, <clears throat> natural populations. Um, one, another uh, business that developed was uh, the use of bottom leases in which they took the seed clams, outplanted them into the sand or muddy bottoms, and then grew them out to a size in which they were sold. And this was done through a, a dedicated access process that was, um, I think is pretty common in many states, even in uh, California where I met Bernard today who has a, a bottom lease to do mussel aquaculture. Um, it's a pretty intensive way to grow out clams because you need these cages because there's a, a critter that will come and eat most of the clams that you put out, and that's the blue crab. So these are done to protect the clams from blue crabs. Um, however, a majority of the clams, seeds, are taken out in boats and basically uh, seeded or thrown out off boats into the natural environment um, where they are. Hopefully they can restock the, the fish, uh, the clams that are caught. Um, of course, another similar problem here is, is predation by this critter. So to undertake sort of an idea of, to get a, a better feeling for improving this process through adaptive management using experiments, we looked at what type of habitat you should outplant the, the clams in, um, how big they should be, what, at what density should you spread them out, because you put clams in one small area, uh, a crab will find them and eat all the, the clams instead of just a few, and when and during the year you should outplant them. Um, crabs go to sleep basically in the wintertime, so if you can get the clams out at a cold enough period, um, you can protect them from predation. And also thinking about restricting oyster harvesting um, of clams in oyster reefs. Um, we went through this um, process and found that, you know, if you uh, didn't pl outplant them in sand, you did it in oyster reefs and grass, you got higher uh, survivorship, that if you used a little bit larger size, they would do much better and at lower densities, um, and that you could uh, plant them at later in the year. And the result of this, and probably other factors, was an increase in the the amount of clams caught in North Carolina in the wild fishery. Um, so this is an idea of how you can uh, utilize the, the results of experiments in management to find out their impacts. Um, we've done similar things with the nat native California oyster, thinking about how aquaculture can benefit uh, natural fisheries, and that was done by another group project, uh, the, the address of which I show here. Um, this is the last slide I have. Um, there's some projects underway um, that uh, reflect this idea of how can we manage, uh, enhance marine aqu um, ecosystems through aquaculture. One is uh, related to uh, white sea bass. Uh, the Hubs um, Marine Institute has released about 2 million white sea bass into the Southern California Bite Waters with the idea that they could uh, enhance the populations that are, that are caught. And we're doing a genetic study with Dr. Kim Selko to find out um, if what's the effect of that releasing of a large um, a number of uh, fish into the, the local ecosystem. Um, there's some other examples uh, working with the Nature Conservancy in which we're trying to develop giant clam aquaculture to um, basically replace or to, to um, divert fishing effort from wild populations to aquaculture species to, to allow them to, uh, natural, to aquaculture species to allow them to, to recover. Um, and so what I hope uh, tomorrow and, and later today we think about some other ideas in which you know, we're getting this sort of triple bottom line, bottom line winning from, uh, from aquaculture production. And with that, I'm done. Here, by the way, is a, uh, found all the different universities that are doing some aquaculture research and classes, so most of the UC campuses are involved with aquaculture. Um, some different issues going on, spatial planning with aquaculture, ecosystem enhancement, um, and I thought today we were having uh, Dr. Fred Conti come from UC Davis, um, and he's sort of our preeminent aquaculture scientist within the UC system. Any questions? Uh, that was great, Hunter. First, I'll comment that the area code on UCSC is wrong. It should be 831, not 408, in case somebody wrote it down. But I, oh. I, I, uh, I'd like to, Could I? <laughs> uh, I'd like to um, concur with you and agree at how important it is to think about this as adaptive management mm -hmm. rather than, and adaptive management doing experiments rather than just 
trying something, and if it doesn't work, we try something else. Uh Because uh, we're never going to succeed without careful thinking Mm -hmm. about how to do these things. Yeah, I agree. As an experimentalist, I appreciate you saying that, too. Um, That's very interesting. Is there any work being done on multi-species aquaculture and using both culture of plants and animals together to try to improve conditions and, you know, reduce acidification and produce, you know, get to the point where we produce as much as we can? I think there are examples. Um, I had a group project that proposed to do that a few years ago, and I challenged them to go and dig up the literature to find out, you know, what are the, the systems that might work and there's actually very not much literature that um, provides insight into whether it works and it's more beneficial for uh, certain uh, for species overall, the production, and whether you can remove, for instance, contaminants. Um, many of the, I think the questions have to do with how limited each one of the, the sort of trophic groups are in terms of food and whether they benefit from being associated with another um, species within the aquaculture grow-out facility. I think there's a lot of scope for work in this regard. I'm really curious about the, your thoughts on the opportunity and the intersection between aquaculture and restoration of ecosystems. It seems like there's huge opportunity to um, accelerate ecosystem restoration, but also tap into massive funding sources that are mm-hmm. in place to restore ecosystems. So rather than just thinking of it as restoring an oyster reef or oyster reef aquaculture or harvest, it's oyster reef or ecosystem recovery, and we spend billions of dollars a year on restoration. Have you seen much of that? Do you think there's a lot of opportunity there? What are your thoughts on that? I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, Sort of speaking from experience, I, I was involved with oyster reef aquaculture on the East Coast, and all the focus was producing habitat for oysters that you would then harvest. Um, subsequently to that, people went in and did an economic analysis and found that per unit area, an oyster reef is much more valuable as habitat for the production of fin fish than it is for oysters. So that kind of economic analysis shifted the emphasis from restoring oyster reefs for oysters to oyster to restoration for an ecosystem purpose. So I think some insightful types of research that really question what what. Uh, why you're restoring, and what are the potential benefits can have a, a good impact. Thanks for your talk. That was really informative. <clears throat> I'm really interested in, in the kind of institutions around recovery. Okay, mm-hmm. So if you think about the technical feasibility of growing up clams and then rele- you know, the mm-hmm. guy shoveling them into the water, yeah. that's, that's sort of one set of issues, and I think that's interesting in its own right. But you know, if you do the, if you if you shovel clams out in an open access fishery, you haven't really achieved much. You could sort of do that till the cows come home, spend a lot of money, and never actually really get anywhere t- towards recovery. But if you have a set of institutions like the spatial property rights, you know, the leases that you mentioned, or some other uh, institution in place that can sort of appropriately manage the newly created resource that you've stocked. Yeah. I think you can get a lot farther. Have, have you thought that through, or is anybody working on that stuff? I think the example was the, the clams that I showed you. They yeah. did very well with dedicated access. Yeah. The, the problem is it sort of it took a lot of, um, you need capital, so you need institutions to come in and help people sort of bump up their capital to start that process. Um, and then you need uh, you know a different set of sort of fishing and harvesting and um, producing processing that material than you do with a natural fishery. In that case, people were making money and doing very well with bottom leases, but the outplenty of clams into the natural population also produced big, large clams eventually that produced the young that could then be harvested or uh, the, the brooders that then you could get the seed out for the dedicated access. The problem with the clams is that you want to harvest them at a small size. They're called cherry clams, which they haven't have produced a lot of output. So it was kind of a, that's a, an example of a mixed system where you would have dedicated access for some things, and then you would think about um, broad-scale uh, restoration for others. And I think there's a lot of examples of that. But I agree that um, those institutions that I know of are within, they're sort of departments within state fisheries management groups, but... They need to be more formalized and, and thought out and more investment placed in those, those type of industries. 
Uh, Emerald, do you have a sense for um, you showed two hundred million dollars a year in California aquaculture, and then at the end you showed that slide of Fred Conti. Yeah. And just given the theme here today, do you have a sense of how much of that aquaculture traces back to UC research? I think 198.5 million. No, I don't really know. I'm not sure. The state, the state schools are involved in it as well. And um, I'm actually pretty new into thinking about aquaculture in California, but I'm not sure. Yeah. example, you raised caviar. That the work on reproduction of sturgeons was done by a Russian scientist at UC Davis named Serge Dorshov. Oh, wow. He worked out how to do kind of a lot of the reproduction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we have someone here who does abalone that has a Davis link. So that number, just as you guys think about mm-hmm. developing this initiative, that number might be useful to try to wrap your head around. Somebody's making, taking notes for our proposal, aren't they? That's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll begin by thanking uh, Chris for this invitation. I tend not to go to meetings because I don't like them, but this has been fantastic. And the best part for me is always meeting the students and postdocs because I know all the old people. And, uh, it's, but I don't know the young people, and so that's been great. Thanks for hanging out with me, you guys. Um, I'll just. This is uh, the Royal Research Ship Discovery. She is famous for the Discovery Reports, which was a study of whales in the Southern Ocean about a hundred years ago. She's now a, a museum in Dundee, Scotland. So if you get up there, you should go visit it and see how scientists did their job a hundred years ago. So um, I'm going to give you one view, my personal view of this. Um, subject matter, and thinking that there might be a spy from UCOP here today. A UCOP is a jargon for the president's office. I thought I would actually talk about the, all three aspects of the mission of the research university, teaching, service, and research, and how they intertwine. If, they, if they're not going to intertwine on food from the sea, they're never going to intertwine. They should blend seamlessly here. So for regarding teaching, I'm going to uh, tell you briefly, we have a, a cooperative program with the fisheries lab in Santa Cruz called the Center for Stock Assessment Research. It was our response to a little bit of money that the senior scientists for uh, NOAA Fisheries gave out uh, about 15 years ago to each of the uh, fishery science centers because he, Bill Fox, saw that quantitatively trained people were all going to retire within the next 15 years, which was really true, and there were very few places that were training them. So our objective was to increase the number of people who could be hired by NIMS and who could do cutting-edge research in stock assessments. NIMS provided a tiny little bit of money, uh, $80,000 a year uh, core funding. Of course, relative to UC's contribution, that's uh, an infinite amount more. <laughs> uh, although UC paid my salary, you could you know I got to work there. Okay, so in order to complement that money, so that we just didn't have one student passing through, I and my uh, NIMS colleagues worked hard to get all sorts of other project-related grants, which included uh, Sea Grant Population Dynamics Fellowships, NIMS internal funding. We did a, the first ever. Uh, Stock Assessment for California Sheephead, worked on Southern Ocean Krill. Of course, the discovery reports are now famous for what they say about krill more than what they say about whales. Um, Worked on steelhead. We've done ecosystem-based fishery management in the Bering Sea and so forth. Um, We have embedded students at the NIMS lab. We have the great advantage that the NIMS lab actually sits at the Long Marine Lab, which is our marine facility about four miles from the main campus. So the students have worked with NIMS scientists throughout their graduate careers or at the uh, Antarctic Ecosystem Research uh, Division in La Jolla, and the students go to sea. And since 2010, we've all had space down at the NIMS lab. Another way of looking at embeddedness is to look at the structure for our lab. And there's a little star 
And e each one of these divisions with a star has at least one C star current student or alum working at the lab, sort of contributing to the food from the C mission. Okay, and again, if there was somebody here from UCOP, I would emphasize to them that the purpose of a research university is to change the world one person at a time. That is, we should not be measuring our output in hundreds of graduates, but we should be asking, how does each individual person change things? We've had a number of students, postdocs, pass through, and they've ended up in lots of different places. So the purpose of our program was to train people who could be hired by NIMS, not to do stock assessments using the tool that uh, is a, basically a canned program. And some of them have gone into academia, some have uh, gone into non-academic places that are not fisheries related, but a bunch of them have ended up working at fisheries. And I see that I have the Manchester lab down here. I was at the Manchester lab, it's a tiny little lab in uh, Western Washington, I was there this summer. It's famous for great, great work on steelhead. But everybody there says the future of nymphs is aquaculture, and they were actually working on sablefish aquaculture. Okay, for service, I'd like to tell you about FishWise. I was wearing my sweatshirt today as a uh, commercial for FishWise. FishWise was started by two graduate students. Uh, the one with me is Teresa Ish was a master's student in uh, marine sciences. She's now a program manager at the Walton Family Foundation. And below her is uh, Shelley Benoit, who uh, was a graduate student also in uh, ocean sciences, a PhD student. I was on the founding board of directors for four years. I left for a few years. I came back on the board of directors uh, in 2010, and I now chair the board of directors. Our first partner was New Leaf Markets, which is a small uh, organic chain in Santa Cruz County. And it started with Teresa and Shelley training the people who are behind the fish counter so that when somebody came in with the Monterey Bay Aquarium card and said, oh, I like this red fish more than this yellow one, or I like this yellow one more than this green one, why should I buy the more sustainable one? The people behind the counter could give them a sensible answer. We now have um, 18 member uh, uh, 18 uh, member retailers. We partner with grocery stores, about 3,800 storefronts, bunch of distributors and 19 producers hoping that there might be also a spy here from the Packard Foundation today. The best I could do is sh try to show the Fishwise garage, right? It's, which is the corner of that little building, which has now been turned down because Fishwise didn't uh, achieve greatness fast enough to become a national historic site, like <laughs> the HP garage. Okay, here's a poster from uh, about 18 months ago, which was our 10th anniversary. You can see in the upper left-hand corner that in 2003, we only had representation in California. Now we are in all 50 states. We had a staff of two who very often, as happens in every startup, did not take salary at the beginning in some months. Now we have a, actually now we have a staff of about 15, and we estimate that there's about 60 million pounds of seafood that's affected by fishwise. Okay, and the mission of Fishwise is to provide innovative and market-based tools for the seafood industry to support sustainability. As I mentioned, we have about 3,800 retailers. That includes Safeway uh, and Target and Hy-Vee. Those are the biggest retailers, as Alan uh, mentioned to me at lunch. Also, uh, Nugget, which is a small chain in Davis. But more importantly, I think, since we're thinking about the future, we began, Fishwise began over in that little corner at the consumer and the retailer. But if you really want to understand the nature of sustainability, you have to go all the way through the supply chain. You have to go all the way back to where the fish are being caught. And as we have developed supply chain uh, work, one of the things that we got into was human rights. And 
basically in, in Asia, much of uh, the fish that's being caught, even if it's being caught sustainably, is being caught by trafficked humans. Now, it's an interesting thing because I think you can have lots of debates about what should the level of a fish stock be, and, and there can be different opinions about that, but I think almost uh, nobody wants to know that their fish has been caught by slaves. And there are very few people who would be pro-slavery. We were act- this, report, this report actually appeared in March last year. If you haven't seen the Guardian expose on trafficking, which came out in June, um, it's well worth looking at. Um, it's pretty disturbing, I should warn you. So we were really ahead of the Guardian, and our um, commercial partners freaked out because, as I said, you know, neither Safeway nor uh, Target were mentioned in that expose, but Costco and Walmart were. And the thing is, none of them knew they were doing this. And, and here's a role that we can really play in, in helping identify these issues. Okay, and, and finally, I'd like to talk uh, about some research stuff and making ecosystem-based reality a, uh, or ecosystem-based fishery management a reality. Uh, after lunch, while I was getting ready for this talk, I overheard a conversation in which what's the difference between optimum and maximum and whether one is you know, quantitative and the other isn't and so forth. Okay, we have a law. We have a law that says we need to manage for optimum yield. And nobody knows how to do that. I mean, so we have precautionary limits that are arbitrary. We have increases in catch that are arbitrary. This just happened at the meeting of the Halibut Commission last month in which the uh, administrator for fisheries wrote to the commission and said, please increase the catch limit for uh, halibut in a certain area of Alaska by 800,000 pounds because that's an important socioeconomic consideration. And that happened. There's going to be about 43 million pounds of halibut taken next year. So, can, again, we can debate whether that is, is uh, an, appropriate, uh, an appropriate amount, 800,000 out of the 43 million. But clearly, just to have a letter from the administrator is no way to run an organization. So uh, many years ago, Tony Charles published an article, uh, an article in which he drew this picture. So this is my triple bottom line. Chris and I did not talk about our, our talks, could, did not coordinate in anticipation of this meeting. So right, if, if you're a marine ecologist, you think of the purpose of fisheries management is conservation of the stock. If you're a fisheries economist, you think the purpose of fishery science is economic efficiency. That is, how do we take the fish from the sea and distribute the, the proceeds most equitably? If you're a fisheries sociologist, you think the purpose of fishery science is to figure out how to maintain fishing communities. Oh, whoops, I said all that just now. Okay, so... so if you look at, I don't know why I point at the screen, if you look at any of those vertices, you're basically doing kind of a single bottom line. If you move along any of those two axes, you can talk about the economics conservation trade-off, for example. And we've actually published two papers about a way to look at how you trade off fishery yield, measured in dollars, let's say, with chick production, or baby grizzly bear production measured in chicks or uh, number of cubs. Or you could think about the economic social trade-off, or you could think about the conservation social trade-off. But where we really want to be is in the middle somehow. Because that's where optimal yield is, and that's where the triple bottom line is. Slightly different triple bottom line, but the same principle, exactly. Okay, so I'm working on methods to, to deal with those things now, and I'm just going to leave it at that. There are two papers that you can find on my website if you want to see how we did two out of the three. Okay, the other thing I'll mention uh, about my own research is uh, the following. I was the independent expert in the case in the International Court of Justice that was decided last year on the Japanese Special Permit Whaling Program in which the court decided that 
that program was not for purposes of scientific research and shut it down. And in the, in the, in the uh, preparations for that case, I learned about international law. I learned a little bit of international law. I have continued to learn international law subsequent to that. And I am trying to figure out if there is a scholarly project and I don't know if there are any, any people here from UC Law Schools. I think some were invited, but I don't know if they're here. I'd really like to know if there's a scholarly project in which we think about how to blend environmental and human rights law, because that trafficking work right, is, is reaching out to NGOs who, who work on human rights, and we're trying to convince human rights NGOs that they need to be thinking about environmental work and vice versa. But then the question I'd like to know is, is there a scholarly project here? And with that, I can take a few questions. Chris. Really fantastic, Mark. Thank you, and thanks for coming. I love the teaser. You know, I'm working on methods yeah. to to tell you how to do the triple right. bottom line yeah. trade-off. Yeah. Can you give us a clue or send me a paper or something? Okay, I'm not going to see something in science next week, am I, by you? Depends how good your idea Okay, okay, so, um, yeah, yeah. Then no. Okay, okay, so you all have he heard it here. Right? If you see a paper in by Chris in science next week or the week after about how to do the triple bottom line, know where it came from, really. Okay, so what, what we did with the double bottom line, that is with this trade-off between uh, biological and economic metrics, is reason as follows. If you think, uh, and, and I'm just going to stick with sort of the classical fishery model here for simplicity. You can make it as complicated as you'd like, but... Um, if you think of increasing fishing mortality and, and imagine yield, this is where I would also like a blackboard, Alan, but if you imagine yield versus the plot of yield versus fishing mortality, it's going to increase with fishing mortality at least up until you hit FMSY. If you think about any of these biological metrics, predator population size, predator chick production, uh, things like that, they will be a, there will be a maximum at no fishing mortality, and they will decline as fishing mortality increases. The way they decline can be captured by uh, empirical data. So, in, in one of the, in, actually, in both of those papers, we use empirical data to capture that decline. They can be captured by a model. One of the things we did with the Lenfest Forage Fish Task Force was we came up with something called the PREP equation, which stands for Predator Response to Prey Removal. And the idea there was to use a bunch of, of ecosim models to, to come up with a formula. So you have one thing that increases with fishing mortality, one thing that decreases with fishing mortality, but they're non-commensurate. So uh, here's the idea. Suppose you take the, f the, fishing, the fishery yield or the fishery revenue at a certain level of fishery mortality and divide it by that at FMSY or FMEY. So then you've got something that goes between 0 and 1 and increases as fishing mortality does. Now you take chip production or population size and you divide that by the value at no fishing mortality. So now you've got something that goes between 0 and 1, but goes down. So now you put these two together. So you'll decide how you weight them, and the weighting you is something that depends on the stakeholders. But actually, as it turns out, very generally, if you, as long as you're weighting the two of them, it doesn't matter how precisely you weight them. And then you can ask, given the, that I've mixed these two, where should my fisher, where is the fishing, fishing mortality that maximizes that mixture, which will be less than whatever gives you just maximum revenue. And you can also read off from that how much revenue do I lose for that increase in predator population size. 
That's the basic idea. For the triple bottom line, what you need to do is, is figure out how to quantify social metrics with harvest strategies, as a function of harvest strategies. And it turns out that there's a ton of work that's been going on in NIMFs in about the last two years. So I was talking to somebody earlier today who's worked with Dan Holland. Oh, maybe you've worked with Dan too. On social metrics associated with cashier programs in New England. But there's stuff happening all over the, the world. Um, and so the, the idea behind this research project for me is, and I, that's why actually I don't think you'll get it done within the next week and write it off to science, um, is, is to figure out how to really quantify those social metrics as a function of harvest strategy and then figure out a way to put all three of them together. Great talk. Uh, can you go back to your slide about uh, Pasteur's quadrant and uh, explain again what your thinking was in, in that area? Oh, yeah. I actually don't have a slide about Pasteur's quadrant in here. But, 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 but I read the abstract for your yeah, talk. Okay, so I'll be I, delighted to talk about Pasteur's quadrant. Okay. And I have plenty of time, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm nowhere near 2.30. How about that? Yeah. Um, so... So Pasteur's Quadrant is, uh, is the title of a book by Donald Stokes. It's published about uh, 18 years ago. Stokes was the dean at, at University of Michigan when he came up with this idea. He was then at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. He was on the National Science Board, and he, um, he got so annoyed one day when everybody was talking about basic versus applied research that he stood up, and again, no blackboard, but he stood up and he kind of extemporaneously did the following. He took a square and he divided it into four quadrants. And the upper one, he labeled motivation. That is, are you motivated by an important applied problem or not? And the left-hand side, he labeled seeking fundamental understanding or not. And then we all can fill in the different quadrants. So, for example, Stokes says Niels Bohr was motivated not by an applied problem, but, but sought fundamental understanding. So he goes into that quadrant. Thomas Edison was motivated by an applied problem and did not want fundamental understanding. In fact, there's apocrypha about Edison firing people for catching them studying Maxwell's equations on their lunch break. Right? He didn't want anybody to do anything except make a better light bulb and so forth. And he put Pasteur in the quadrant for motivated by an important implied problem, but seeking fundamental understanding. And Pasteur, from the time of his PhD, every piece of work he did was motivated by some important applied problem. In fact, he started working on rabies, a vaccine for rabies when he was 63 years old. He always used that. And then the, the quadrant that gets not motivated by an implied problem and not seeking fundamental understanding, I never fill out when I give a talk. <laughs> you all read papers. You know who does it. <laughs> that okay? Uh, what action can actions can we take specifically about the human trafficking? What, who should we boycott, etc.? Oh. That's, are you going to answer that question? Oh, too bad. <laughs> that would have been handy. Um, I, I, you know, if you look at the, uh, probably if you look at the two reports, or the, the two reports that Fishwise has put out, and the Guardian um, expose. The biggest problem are shrimp, shrimp vessels in Southeast Asia. So you need to be asking your suppliers, and when you go to the grocery store, if you're a consumer, if, if you're a grocery store, you need to be asking your suppliers, where are these shrimp coming from? That's probably the biggest problem. There's this, you mentioned ecosystem-based management. 
um, an ecosystem-based sort of fishery stock assessment approaches. Uh, and I see those people talking about those in terms of multi-species um, uh, measurements of when one species goes down, their prey populations go up or down, et cetera. Is there another approach to um, ecosystem-based fishery management that um, incorporates productivity into uh, single-species stock assessments to get better uh, ideas about the, the scale, for instance, of populations that we can fish. Do you know of any work going on in that regard? You, you mean productivity, like lo lower trophic level? No, yeah, no. lower trophic levels or... Yeah, well, uh, I think the guys who do eco-sim, eco-path with eco-sim would say that a lot of what they're doing can incorporate some of the lower trophic level stuff. Beth Fulton's work on Atlantis would incorporate lower trophic level things as well. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to respond to the scholarly projects on human rights and the um, great the slavery issues. And um, one one thing that it brings to mind is the issue of certification. And um, any decent certification system should have a social factor series of, of, right. of standards. And um, That certainly has to be part of it, and benchmarking whether or not those are effective, I think, is an important task. Um, whether it's a scholarly task or not, I don't yeah. know, yeah. Uh, but it needs to be done. Um, the The other thing is that the more broad question about human rights law is it, it sort of covers a lot a lot of ground. Um, we we do we are doing and have been doing work in Mexico on um, human rights to water and land use development. You know, that increasingly in California is an issue of do you let people develop anywhere and right. do you have to then serve them with, with water, um, that sort of thing. So there's definitely some intersections there that are really interesting and important, and right. I don't have anything beyond that yet, but uh -huh. let's keep talking. Okay, so can I, I have time to respond to both of those? So re regarding the certifications, yes. So, for example, if you look at the Marine Stewardship Council, that one of their principles actually deals with, with social factors. But they have yet, although there's somebody in the London office who's been pushing, they have yet to actually deal with human rights trafficking. Regarding your second point, I think you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, what we're doing both at Fishwise and what I'm doing um, myself is kind of looking at other kinds of situations in which human rights have interacted, either with business or with the environment, to see what models there are for us to figure out how to go forward both at Fishwise and uh, with my putative scholarly project. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.